So highly recommend doing that. So, um, so as I mentioned, I just finished teaching this retreat where we had ten days to dwell in the delicious abode of these uh, paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart. Paramis are traditionally translated, uh, uh, literally translated as perfections. Um, but since most of us suffer from perfectionism and um, striving to be all too impossibly perfect and failing miserably uh, and suffering horribly, um, I don't really like to use the word perfection. I just like to use the, 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 the Pali word parami. Uh, and I like to refer to it as a, as a beautiful quality of the heart. They're beautiful qualities we can manifest in our lives, the qualities that are both innate to who we are, patience, love, truthfulness, these are all innate qualities, and they're also qualities we can develop and uh, ripen and mature. So um, so practice is, is, is sometimes seen of as coming home to ourselves, coming home to our nature, coming home to the truth of who we are beneath our usual busyness and our egoic uh, machinations and dramas. And when we get quieter, when we get clearer, we can start to access these beautiful qualities in the heart and to see how they can be brought forth and into our lives and, and ripened. So I'll just mention them again and I'll go through, I'll see how far I get through, I'll probably get through a few of them and Maybe all of them, we'll see. So the ten qualities are, and, I, and as I say them, just see which ones resonate for you, which one's like, oh yeah, I feel I have a sense of that, and which one's like, oh, that really isn't, that doesn't really connect with me, or it's something I haven't developed, or it's something I really struggle with. So the qualities are generosity, morality or ethics, renunciation or letting go, wisdom, energy, Patience, truthfulness, determination, love, loving kindness, metta, and equanimity. So just sensing into what, which ones uh, resonate for you. And uh, one of the teachings that the Buddha gave that I really like a lot and have used a lot throughout my practice is, is this line where he says something like, Whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that the mind becomes, that the heart becomes. Whatever we, wherever we turn our attention, that's what will be uh, uh, given focus and therefore brought to light and cultivated. It's that Native American story that Jack sometimes tells of a uh, grandfather telling his grandson uh, that in people there live two wolves. And one wolf is full of greed and hatred and desire and is selfish and competitive and angry and aggressive. And the other wolf is kind and benevolent and generous and patient and beautiful and wise and sincere and truthful. And they're always at odds with each other. And people, these, these, these two wolves fight with each other inside most people. And so the grandson says to the grandfather, so if they're always fighting, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. The one you feed. So in every moment, in every day, 
we have a choice, right? What do we feed in ourselves? Do we feed these ten beautiful qualities or other qualities that might be present for you? Or do we, pres- do we cultivate the opposite? You know, stinginess and delusion and holding on and whatever the other opposites, reactivity. So what I like about this, this particular teaching um, is uh, how it speaks to this innate aspect of who we are and also what we can develop. And the paramis are really... So the, 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 histor- the history of how these teachings came about was that mytho- in mythological time, uh, the Buddha in a previous uh, life before he was the Buddha, as a bodhisattva, one who was dedicated to awakening for all beings, he made a vow to, uh, to develop full Buddhahood, which, may, which means developing all these uh, amazing qualities that the Buddha possesses so they can teach and their teaching can have the most impact. And he reflected on the ten qualities that were necessary, and these were the ten qualities. This is from Acharya Dhammapala, who is a great commentarian from many centuries ago. He said, through his wisdom, the bodhisattva, the one who's dedicated their lives to awakening, perfects within themselves the character of a Buddha, and through their compassion, the ability to perform the work of a Buddha. Through wisdom, she brings herself across the stream of ignorance, and through compassion, she leads others across to awakening. So, um, uh, one way of looking at these qualities is they're developmental. They're a cultivation of our own... It's like taking our, taking our life as an art, as an art project. Taking, taking our life as the history uh, to develop ourselves as a beautiful piece of art. And not that we're starting from a lumpy old block of wood, but um, we can refine uh, whatever uh, gifts are innately given to us. This is from uh, Stephen Batchelor, who's writing about this aspect of uh, this, this teaching for, for um, lay people, which we are, as opposed to monastics who've renounced the world, um, and how relevant this aspect of cultivating these qualities are for us. He was talking about the Buddha. He said, The Buddha compared the self to a field, a potentially fertile ground that when irrigated and tended, enables plants to flourish. He compared us to an arrow, a wooden shaft, a metal head, and a feather fletching, fletching which when assembled can be projected onto an inerring course of its target. And he compared the self to a block of wood, comparing one something one can fashion and shape into a utensil or roof beam. In each case, simple things are worked and transformed to achieve human ends. Such a model is of self is more pertinent to a lay person in this world rather than to a monk and a nun intent on renouncing the world. It presents a different sort of challenge. Instead of training oneself to achieve a serene detachment from the turbulent events of this life, it encourages one to grapple with these events in order to imbue them with meaning and purpose. The emphasis is on action rather than inaction, on engagement rather than disengagement. So here we are living our lives in the world and we have very full, busy, complex lives. And in the midst of that is the, as the expression goes, it's the manure for Bodhi. It's the, it's the nitty-gritty of our lives that provide the stage in which we can grow and develop or drown in misery, 
you know, take your choice, really. So, um, and that's really, you know, what these teachings are saying. They're saying, you know, here's a way that you can live that can bring about beautiful qualities and uh, gifts to yourself and the world. Or you can not. Choice is yours. One road has a lot more suffering in it. One road has a lot more kindness and joy and wisdom in it. And so these are qualities that um, uh, in, in, in the... In the, in the, in the in the sense of the parami, they're qualities that really uh, develop to their to their excellence, and so maybe in our lifetime we may develop one or two of these qualities to their you know, fullest capacity. Uh, you know, there's many historical figures that have developed qualities, say, um, like for the Dalai Lama, developed the quality of compassion par excellence. You know, maybe Mother Teresa developed the the, the quality of determination of the tremendous work she did across the world. So um, likewise, we can do the same. This is from Thoreau. He says, What we do best or most imperfectly is what we have most thoroughly learned by the longest practice, and at length it falls from us without our notice as a leaf from a tree. So over time, as we practice these things, they no longer become practices, but they become part of the inherent fabric of our being. So, and the other thing I like about these, this particular practice is that it unites our inner practice and our outer practice. We develop these qualities in the meditation, in the solitude of our inner practice, and we develop these, these, practice, these qualities in the midst of our relationships and, and with our children and in our work situation. And when you go to the voting booth tomorrow, which I hope you all will, So here's an example of somebody who's, who's made their life uh, an example of this. Uh, a wise woman elder was once asked what she used to make her complexion so beautiful and her whole being so bright and attractive. And she answers, I use for my lips truth. I use for my voice kindness. I use for my ears compassion. I use for my hands charity. I use for my figure uprightness. I use for my heart love. And I use for any who do not like me prayer. So it's a beautiful example of someone who's you know, taken the nitty-gritty of our lives and transformed them into these lovely qualities through, through the body in that case. So I'm just going to start going through the different qualities. Um, I could start anywhere. I'm going to start with patience, probably because that's the one I need to practice the most. <laughs> you would think a meditation teacher and someone who's meditated for 25 years would have excelled patience by now, but not necessarily the case <laughs> in my case. So we all have our strengths and we all have our challenges, right? So patience is one of mine. And I look to these figures like An Sang Suu Kyi, you know, who spent the greater part of 20 years in house arrest, where she's free to go, free to leave the country. She was free to go and visit her children, free to go and visit her dying husband. And she decided, and she, she decided not to. She had the strength, the persistence, the perseverance. She had manifested many of these qualities, the patience, to stand up to the brutality of the Burmese regime and say, no. I am here because I'm a source of strength and hope for my people. 
or the Dalai Lama, when he hears probably daily about the brutality that's been inflicted by the Chinese regime in Tibet and the patience he has to exude in dealing with the Chinese authorities. Very beautiful manifestation. So we, would, we can't get through our lives without developing some kind of patience. Otherwise, we would just kill each other. You know, in traffic, you know, we'd kill our parents or our children or our partners or our housemates or our neighbors or our dogs. Or, you know, we have to have some kind of tolerance. And there are different places that, you know, get us to practice more than others, usually when we live with people or they share their last name as us. This is from a bumper sticker. It says, sometimes I wake up grumpy. Other times I let him sleep. (laughs) I thought that was great. So every moment, not every moment, but many moments in the day, we have a chance to practice patience. Like just driving here today, I mean, how many of you were caught in traffic somewhere? Or as you go to work and you develop hatred and antagonism and frustration and self-judgment that you didn't leave earlier, or you develop patience. A spring washroom, when I was, one of the teachers who I was teaching with last week, she said, everything is on time. Everything is on time. Everything arrives on time. It's a very profound statement. So sometimes we, the, the place we need the most patience is with, with our nearest and dearest, with our loved ones, with our family, whether it's your children or your parents or your siblings. And I want to read a story um, from Natalie Goldberg about the folly and the danger of teaching your parents or your family to meditate. <laughs> my parents are visiting me in my home in Santa Fe. It is a cool late July afternoon and we are sitting on the porch. Amazingly, we are not eating. We're just staring straight ahead at the high adobe wall a hundred feet in front of us. We are sitting in a line. I am in the middle. Hey, Nat, my father begins. What is meditation? It's hard to explain. Then because I am young and still incredibly foolish, I have a brilliant, daring idea. Do you want to try? And before they can answer, I run into the house and get a bell. Accoutrements, I think, will make it official. Okay, when I ring the bell, you just sit there and feel your breath go in and out of your nose. If your mind wanders, bring it back gently to your breath. We'll sit for ten minutes. Okay, they both say suddenly, eager, this will be fun, and they wriggle in their seats to compose themselves. The bell sounds three times, and we settle into this most ordinary thing, people breathing next to each other. My father on my right, my mother on my left. I cannot believe this is happening. Here we all are, all paying attention. The ten minutes feel spacious and luscious forever. The shade is cool, we're all quiet. This must be what heaven is. The time is up, I ring the bell once to mark the end of the meditation. Well... How was it, I ask? Did you have a lot of distractions? My father shrugs his shoulders. What's the big deal? Well, did you discover how much you think? Was it hard to concentrate? No, I didn't have a single thought. (laughs) None, I asked, surprised? Not a one. Well, did you feel peaceful? Not particularly. It was like how it always is when you don't talk. That's why human beings talk. Nothing is happening otherwise. (laughs) I turned to my mother. I was aggravated the whole time, she said, about your friend. She must think I'm awful. At dinner the night before, my mother had blurted out that she had thought the chapters of my novel were awful, and my friend Francis, who was there, told me later that my mother was jealous. I confronted my mother that morning, and she apologized profusely. I don't know what came over me. Your chapters are lovely. Let's try again, my mother says. This time I'll do it right. I start to explain there's no right or wrong, but instead just say, okay, okay. This time I want to ring the bell, my father grabs a stick. (laughs) 
He ceremoniously hits the bell three times. We are sitting two and a half minutes when my father suddenly belts out, Hello, Dolly. Well, hello, Dolly. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. While ringing the bell continuously to accompany himself. Buddy, please, my mother tries to interrupt him, struggling to reach across me to grab the bell, but my father won't stop. He's having a ball. I'm the only one still staring straight ahead at the blank adobe wall, still attempting to notice my breath. I decide right then and then, right there and then, I don't have to save my parents. They don't count as sentient beings. They're in another category. I imagine the enlightened ones talk under the Bodhi tree. There are ten kind of beings. And now the Buddha turns his head and addresses me personally. And Natalie, your father is in the eleventh kind. Out of this universe. <laughs> so be warned of the challenge of teaching your family to meditate. <laughs> so, anyhow. Beware of not having your talk organized. You lose a page, so you see if you can develop patience about where you put the rest of your talk, <laughs> which has suddenly gone AWOL. All right. All right. Well, we're going to lose a few paramis there. Just because that just disappeared off the face of the earth. Just, this is see, this is I'm teaching patience, and and there it is, patience. Oh, here we go. See, everything comes around. So also we get to develop patience when we practice meditation. Have you noticed how the mind wanders? Anybody, anybody's mind wanders? You notice that? Yeah, it happens. So we get to practice. It's a great training in patience because we all have crazy minds. You noticed? The mind says, think this. And then five minutes later, it's like, why are you doing that? You should be doing this. And you start doing that. No, no, why are you doing that? You should be doing this. There's a cartoon that I like from Subconscious Comics. And there's a a little meditator sitting in a darkened room and everything's peaceful and quiet and a little bright light comes on. And of course, the mind gets like, ooh, what's that? Looks good. Hmm, I want it. Mm, I've got to have it. If I don't have it, I'm going to die. And he gets it. Yes, yes, he falls over in bliss. And then he's, later he's back in meditation. Darkened room. A little white light comes on. Hmm, what's that? And around, around, around we go. Around samsara we go. So one way to think of patience is uh, instead of uh, thinking of it a grim endurance, it's a kind of a steadiness. It's a way that we have a certain constancy with our experience or a constancy with difficulty. <laughs> you printed out my talk. That's so sweet. <laughs> See, the universe provides. What can you know? What you know? <laughs> Thank you, Sean. <laughs> so, because um, sometimes patience can feel like a tall order, but maybe can we can either call to mind the idea of being steady when things are difficult, when things are trying, when things are challenging, when things are irritating? What's it like to hold a spacious presence? Sometimes what we need to do is hold ourselves kindly in our own reactivity. We we actually hold the impatience, sometimes just naming our impatience. And when we embrace and when we allow that to be okay as it is, 
something softens in us and then, then we find, oh, actually we have a little more patience than we realize. Mostly what we need patience with is our humanness, right? We're all wacky and idiosyncratic and we forget and we remember and we practice and we forget and we space out and we make an intention and we forget and we're always falling off the path and off the wagon in different ways. And we can judge ourselves and beat ourselves and think we're not measuring up and not perfect enough. Or we can just embrace our humanness. This is a poem from Marie Howe called What the Living Do. She's speaking to Johnny, her uh, deceased brother who took his life some years ago. She writes, Johnny, the kitchen sink, see if you relate to this in your experience. You know, it's how our lives are very different than what it looks like on the ads on TV, where the houses are really clean and the lawn is swept and everything is looking great. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke about. It's winter again. The sky is a deep headstrong blue and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and my sleeve, I thought it again and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it. Parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold, what you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments, walking, when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherish, cherishing, cherish, and I'm gripped by a cherishing, <laughs> patience. <laughs> and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face, and my unbuttoned coat that I am speechless. I am living and I remember you. There are moments waking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat, and all the other messiness of our lives. So that's what happens when we, when our heart opens uh, out of the realm of busyness and impatience and demanding, and we just catch a moment. We see our reflection as a moment of softening, a moment of tenderness in the midst of the chaos and the dirty dishes and the unreplied emails and the bills piling up, we can bring a softening to that. Patience brings a softening. And as you see with the paramis, they they each feed into each other. So the parami of patience feeds the quality of love and many other things. So uh, another quality is the quality of generosity. And I like to think of the paramis, these qualities, they're all, exp- they're all really uh, expressions of generosity and they're all acts of generosity. If you think about someone who's really, who has a lot of integrity, a lot of truthfulness, a lot of 
moral reliability. What do they give? They give the gift of trust. You can trust them. You can rely on them. You feel safe around them because you know they really have a lot of integrity. Or when someone is really truthful, it's a gift they're giving to to each other. Someone who's patient, you know, someone who someone who's been patient with you as a student, you know, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful gift of humanity to give to somebody. So when I think about these qualities, I like to think about people who embody them. So think about someone you know who's generous, and what that does to your heart when you think about their generosity. I've always admired my sister for her. She's just very open-handed in her generosity, always willing to share whatever she has. Very inspiring to be around. I go to Bodh Gaya sometimes in India where the Buddha got enlightened, and there's a beautiful woman, Sister Mary, who works as a nun and works for the poorest of the poor. She works with the untouchable women going out into these incredibly destitute villages and just giving her whole life over to serving and helping them uh, with uh, getting their feet on the ground financially and otherwise and working with oppression and the injustice in the system there. And it's just inspiring to be around. I just, I just, just thinking about it, I feel moved by her practice. Uh, and Jack Cornfield himself, I, I think about him as in his generosity, what he's created through his practice. The spirit, this whole center here, Spirit Rock, is really developed through his vision and generosity. I did a teacher training with Jack for four years, as everybody who teaches here does. And we train with him for four years, and we meet several times a year, and he doesn't charge a single penny. He could charge, I don't know what he could charge, he could charge a lot of money. He's quite well known these days, as you might know. But it's a purely a gift out of the love of his heart, the love of practice. The Buddha talked about generosity as something that gladdens the heart. It's, a, it's one of those qualities that when we reflect on our own generosity, it brings about a sense of goodness. We can sense our own goodness. We had a really fun um, uh, challenge when we finished our training with Jack. We, we, we were so indebted in gratitude to his, uh, his time. He really gave of himself, not just on the training, but throughout those four years. And we thought, well, what can we give him back? He sort of has everything. He has a nice house, and he has, you know, whatever, you know. You know he's not into Harley Davidson, so, you know. Um, <laughs> but he did have a really beaten-up old car. And uh, there was eight of us in the training. We were just sort of throwing out ideas. And someone said, why don't we buy him a new car? I was like, wow, you don't just buy someone a new car. <laughs> and then we said, well, why not? So eight of us chipped in, and we bought, it, we bought him his new car. And... Um, and it was hard to know who was happier, Jack for receiving the car or us for giving it. It was just, it's a delight to give. You know, whenever you get, it can be, it could be a dollar to somebody who's broke and homeless, or it can be something quite extravagant. And who's giving and who's receiving? You know, to see the look on Jack's face, that was the gift to all of us when he, when he saw it. It was very sweet. I have a client I work with who, um, he has, uh, four kids and, um, three daughters, and um, his act of generosity is he goes to these, um, these Indian princess evenings. Because he has three daughters, he's always going to these Indian princess evenings, <laughs> weekends and evenings, and he works really hard, and he's, you know, like we all do. And I just, it's just it's a sweet, he just does it out of love 
of his kids. So parenting is a beautiful act of generosity, as are many things that we do, caring for our elderly parents, caring for sick ones that we know. So to see how we both how we can cultivate these qualities, but also to look at where you're already developing, where you're already manifesting these qualities. You know, we, we don't move through this life without being generous to various people. And so to reflect on, oh, there's actually a lot of goodness in my heart that I don't even t- that I don't even notice. I just think, oh, that's just what you do. But no, to to really take it in, not in a narcissistic way, but just to see that these qualities are already alive within you. There's a story of when somebody was here, they were um, uh, attending one of the teachings that the nuns were giving and uh, came to the end of the day and, you know, when you're asked to, um, uh, to give some dana to contribute to the support of whoever's teaching and, um, and went through the usual machination of, well, how much do I give and how much is it worth and how many people are around and what's, you know, what's appropriate and what's the right thing. And she thought, well, maybe 10, oh, that's kind of low, maybe 20, oh, I don't know. And... Um, uh, she said, I'm just going to just put my hand in my purse and whatever note I pull out, I'm just that's going to be fine. So she pulls her hand in the note and she pulls out a $100 bill. <laughs> and she's like, oh no. <laughs> and then she gives it because she, she committed to giving that, which is, and she felt really delightful in giving, delighted in giving that. And it's actually great practice in generosity. I did this practice for a long time to act on the first impulse of generosity. Because the second, third, fourth thought about it is like, oh, I don't know, I really like it, maybe I'll need that, you know, jack-in-the-box toy I got when I was five, you know, and I can't give it to my nephew because, you know, I have another nephew who likes it, you know, you know how the story goes. So, um, so when you have a generous impulse, what would it be like just to act on it? Whether it's money, whether it's your time, whether it's your love, whether it's your energy, whether it's your support, whether it's agreeing to help somebody in a project, to let yourself act on that first impulse. It's a beautiful practice. So a third quality we develop uh, with the paramis is the quality of wisdom, which is really what we develop as a, as a result of all our practice. Hopefully we become wiser in our sitting, we become wiser in our speech, we become wiser in our relationships. It's really the central, one of the central uh, pillars of Buddhist practice is developing wisdom. So there's a cartoon where this man's crawling up a very steep hillside because he's heard there's this really wise guru sitting in a cave in the top of the mountain. He's crawling up the mountainside and there's a little picture of the the guru, you know, with a little, you know, doty loincloth and nothing else, nothing in the cave, white beard, looking really wise. Guy crawls up, you know, sweating, finally gets to the top of the mountain into the cave. And he bows down before the guru and says, Oh, great one, you know, please tell me the, the wisdom that you've learned from all your spiritual endeavors. And the guru says, If I was really wise, would I be sitting up here cold in my underpants at the top of the hill? <laughs> so who knows where we get wisdom from? <laughs> you know, we get wise just by paying attention just by paying attention to the things that we do and the messes we get into. And if we can keep the judge off our backs and we can forgive ourselves, we can learn. We hopefully learn through our experience. So this is some more bumper sticker wisdom for you about wisdom. Forget about world peace. Visualize using your turn signal. 
Change is inevitable except from a vending machine. (laughs) This is a good one for the secularists of you. As long as there are tests, as as long as there are school tests, there will be prayer in public schools. (laughs) When you do a good deed, get a receipt in case heaven is like the IRS. Time is the best teacher. Unfortunately, it kills all of its students. (laughs) So, you know, hopefully in our practice, through seeing, through cultivating this wise attention, we get to see more clearly the truth, the truth of ourselves, of our experience, of the laws that govern the universe. We get to see the truth of change. You're not just oh yeah, not just some conceptual idea of what of change, but we get to see the living, breathing reality in our breath, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our experience. We get to see the relationship of change to the aging process. This is from Shakespeare. And from the Tempest he writes, Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you. We're all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yes, all which, in, all which it inherits shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep that this too happens to us. You know, we think it happens out there. Things change, people change, people pass away, but we somehow still believe that we're going to keep somehow persevering. So hopefully we grow wise as we see, as we look deeply, as we look honestly. It's where the, um, the parami of truthfulness really goes hand in hand with this the, uh, the power of wisdom. As we see the truth, we speak the truth. We see the folly of not living in the truth. We see the pain, we feel the pain of living out of alignment with the truth. And it's amazing, the universe has this inbuilt mechanism for telling us when we're out of alignment with the truth, when we're out of alignment with reality. What happens? What happens? Problem. It hurts. We get sick. It hurts. It's painful. <laughs> Yeah, we suffer. It's amazing. As soon as we're suffering, we can, we can see that we're somehow in, not in alignment with reality. Sadly, our politicians don't seem to care too much about that. So here we are in election frenzy, and all the complete untruthfulness that's being spun on the radio and the TV and the ads from both sides is really a sad indictment of the political culture that we live in. And what would it be if we lived in a world where politicians spoke the truth? We might, we might, I know, I know, dream on. We might know who to vote for because we might actually trust what they're saying as opposed to listening to 1984 doublespeak.
cartoon for you. This is from Bizarro. There's a guy, he's come home from a day at work. And um, this is, I guess, maybe, you know, sometimes we have to... The Buddha said, speak what's truthful and what's useful. So um, sometimes we're, we, we have these great clarity, moments of clarity and perception, and sometimes we say things that are true, but not necessarily so mm, helpful in the moment. Dear Kirby, after all these, this is a note pinned to the door of his house. Dear Kirby, after all these years of meditation and in spite of your endless ridicule, I have finally reached universal consciousness. I have transcended to a higher plane. I am everywhere and nowhere, non-existent and eternal, all-seeing and all-knowing. Sounds pretty good. You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. So sometimes as we cultivate wisdom and truthfulness, we have to be truthful with ourselves and the truth of how we're living our lives and how we live in relationship to ourselves. So I want to read a poem that I wrote some months ago about this. It's called Finding Ourselves. What do you now have to give up to truly find yourself? What has to be let go the numberless faces you have to disappoint, the arms, out, the arms outstretched demanding your attention, begging for your presence. What allows you to turn towards the one who has been forgotten, neglected, even abandoned inside? Perhaps you don't know this voice living within you that lives a separate life, the one you've ignored while trying to satisfy all those other cries. It takes a certain will or a bold act of courage even a moment of grace for you to remember the shade of your own face, the taste of your own skin. And in that turning, there will be times you may feel banished to the wasteland, scorned for your selfishness. But there comes a time when you feel, finally realize you have to go into the night to find your true inheritance, something only found in the stillness of the dark, in the bitter regions of grief, in the desolation of loss. Hopelessness and confusion may reign there, and you might be stripped bare, but you sense there is no choice but to keep diving in. There you may face your own annihilation and stare into the mirror of your infinite aloneness until after some time, perhaps infinity, that wasteland becomes familiar, loneliness becomes a memory, and you feel strangely at home, finally at ease in your own company not divided against yourself, where you find everything stands solitary yet intimate, not yet understood but felt. And from that dark night, you step back into the day, though its colors may blind you and the bewilderment comes. You come to know who you are, the same yet transformed. The old tugs no longer catch you, and you move lighter, not weighed down by the call to leave yourself again, not for anything. That road lies a sure death. This path speaks of emergence. So sometimes the truthfulness is to be truthful to ourselves and to our own calling, not to the calling of others. So out of wisdom, out of truthfulness, arises equanimity. Out of our mindfulness practice arises equanimity. We sit, we watch, we're patient, the mind wanders, 
things arise, pain comes and goes, joy comes and goes, meditation comes and goes, relationships come and go, life comes and goes, and we sit in the still point of awareness in the center of it all. And over time, we develop some equanimity. Equanimity is this capacity to meet things as they are without the habitual struggle to change it, to resist it, to improve it, to fix it, especially in relationship to ourselves. So um, apparently there's some baseball game happening tonight. And uh, sports, for those of you who are sports fans, is a great place to practice equanimity. I mean, it's too bad the Giants lost 15-3 tonight, but you know. (laughs) I'm not saying what happened, but you can practice with your equanimity because if you're a Texas fan, you know, you get to practice one way and if you're a Giants fan, you get to practice another way. So I'm I'm a big soccer fan and um, my soccer team is not the best, let's put it that way. And... um, it's a great place to practice equanimity. You know, to, to wherever we're attached, there we will have our equanimity tested. Because we, 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 we don't want to be, you know, if you're a sports fan or you're, you're rooting for an ice skater or whatever it is you're, you're, you're rooting for, yeah, you, um, the strength of the attachment you know, hinders the equanimity. So you rarely show up to a game or some event. You go, you know, I'm just okay with whatever happens. You know, life is will be what it will be. And, you know, if the opponents win, that's really just how it is. And, you know, things are as they are and it's all beautiful. No, we get mad or we get upset or we get depressed or we get something, right? We get attached. So it's a great practice. It's a great metaphor for how we are in our lives, right? We, get, we, we do get, we do care. We are passionate and we get attached, What's interesting is when we um, have those times in our meditations or in our lives where we uh, experience an expansiveness, a spaciousness, an emptiness, an openness, a cloudy, a deep sense of love and unconditionality. And we, it's always those moments where you feel like, oh, finally I've landed. Finally I'm here. This is, this is it, you know. Awakening, here we come. You know, it's just a, it's just an easy road from here on in. You know, and then ten minutes later, you know, I know somebody knocks on the doorbell, or you realize you've left the, you know, kettle on, or you forgot to return that email, and suddenly you're flooded with anxiety or fear or hostility, or, you know, you have to go to work and you're suddenly all tight and, and hating the traffic. And what happened to the clarity and the spaciousness and the love and the peace and the you ever notice that? We expand and contract. How are we with the contractions? Not so great. We like the expansions. But we don't live in a universe that, in, that, that goes one way. It's, it's forever pulsing, ebbing and flowing, just as we do. So this is uh, from a friend of mine who was, uh, this is actually from my book, Awake in the Wild, but um, a friend of mine, uh, Catherine, who's a great meditator in England, she writes, while doing a standing meditation with my eyes closed in the forest in the French Pyrenees, I notice a tickle on my face. 
It traveled repeatedly from my mouth to my right eye and back again over a period of about 10 minutes. Practicing non-reactivity, I breathed patiently, sensing many light legs busily walking back and forwards. How many of you would have kept your eyes closed? After some time, a strange new sensation appeared on my mouth like it was being covered. Curiosity got the better of me and I opened my eyes. A small spider had woven a delicate web over my mouth and secured its gossamer thread on an eyelash. I felt an exquisite intimacy with this being. I felt touched at being considered a part of nature suitable to make a home on. And yet at the same time, I knew I would shatter its home and our intimacy when I opened my mouth. What intimacy, delicacy, and destruction. The touch of grace as delicate as a spider's thread. So here we live in this world, you know, she, you know, she has to eat, so she has to open her mouth, and there goes the, 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 there goes the spider web. So um, I love that story, and, and I love the equanimity that she was able to stand for 10 minutes and just watch this, the feel, this thing. You know, normally it's, we'd be like, how many, five seconds, 10 seconds? Oh, oh, ooh, sorry. Mm. <laughs> So sometimes, because I do a lot of my meditation outdoors, I, I have the practice of letting mosquitoes bite me. And that's a great practice. So you feel the mosquito land, and then there's that bracing, and then it, you know, a little, you know, we feel a piercing, but you feel a stinging, you know, and then it gets intense, and every cell in the body wants to kill that mosquito. You know, and it's, and it eventually, you know, fills up, fills up its gas tank and flies off and, you know, leaves a little bump and, you know, no big deal. So um, one of my teachers, um, Christopher Titmus, uh, he was practicing in a monastery uh, in Thailand, northern Thailand, no, southern Thailand, and um, he was in the, in the, lived in the forest, the forest monastery, so there's lots of animals and wild animals and snakes and spiders and all kinds of interesting creepy crawlies where you really get to practice you know, equanimity, and one day... <laughs> There was a big commotion in the courtyard, and these two, jo- two dogs were chasing a poisonous snake across the courtyard. And the snake was, you know, desperately trying to get away. Of course, the dogs weren't going to grab it because it was poisonous, and they knew not to grab it. And there was a monk sitting very calmly under the under the, the tree, and the snake thought, "Oh, that looks like good hiding place," and went straight underneath the monk's robes <laughs> and up the monk's robes. And of course, monks don't wear anything under their robes. Um, <laughs> So, and <laughs> Christopher's watching all this, and um, the monk doesn't move. He just sits there with tremendous equanimity or, or complete dread or both. And the dogs are barking and yapping, and you know, eventually they get bored and they slink away, and the, the monk keeps sitting there. And at some point, the snake just slowly uncoils and goes back into the jungle. So, we have a, a cobra we're going to bring in right now, and. Uh, <laughs> We're gonna. He has this other great story, which kind of leads into the last quality I'll get time for. Um, he's teaching in uh, in uh, in Australia. In um, I forget the part of Australia where this retreat center is. It's in the jungle, and of course in Australia they have eighty kinds of poisonous snakes, um, which is a lot. And you know, we have probably I don't know how many we have here. A few, two. So um, that's a lot more than here. 
And um, so they're sitting in meditation, room full of people, and the roof gets really hot. And it's in the, it's, you know, it's in Australia. It gets really hot in the summer. And the, the, the snakes that hang up in the roofs, when it gets too hot, they just drop to the floor <laughs> to get away from the heat. And so, and there's one particular uh, student who was having a lot of trouble with, with letting go. And he was like really holding on. <laughs> you know where the story is going, right? <laughs> so he's sitting in meditation and suddenly the snake drops right into his lap and then, you know, comes up and is looking at him like this. <laughs> and Christopher and his co-teacher, his co-teacher lives on the land. Uh, they hear this. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so they see this guy who has this this issue around letting go with a snake. <laughs> and, um, and he eventually shouts out, is it poisonous? <laughs> and um, the, the, own, the, the owner of the land says, no. And he whispers to Christopher, well, not really. <laughs> And eventually, you know, he stays steady enough or transfixed in fear, more likely, and immobilized with fear that the snake just, you know, relaxes as they do when they're not threatened, and they slinked away through the yogis and out to the bush. So, um, it's pretty cold. So anyhow, so nature is a great teacher, as we know, of equanimity, as is life, as is the stock market, as is uh, the economy, as is your relationship, as is the fragility of life. So we get to practice this, this parami. So um, equanimity is a great support for the next quality, quality of renunciation, quality of letting go. And one of the things we get to see as we practice, as we see how the mind incessantly attaches to an experience or an event or a person or a thing or something, it goes, oh, if I just get to this thing, you know, if I just get this promotion, if I just get this, you know, chocolate truffle, if I just get this, you know, new pair of shoes from I don't know where, you know, then you know I'm going to be happy, right? That's 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 our internal mantra. You know, I just get this relationship fixed. They just do what I tell them to do, then I'll be happy. You know, good luck. Never happens. Well, no, it's not true. It does happen. It happens momentarily. We get satisfied, and after about mm, you know 25 seconds, we go, oh, well, now I need some coffee, or I need a cigarette, or something. So. Um, you know, we live in this culture that that has us in this trance of um, belief in the future. Happy, you know, happiness is available outside of ourselves in time, in some event, something. So this is my favorite um, uh, magazine ad. This is from Outside Magazine. And there's a guy sitting in front of his truck meditating like this, don't know how he can do that because it's really hard to do that for any longer than two minutes. I'll try it, see how long I can last. Anyhow, so it says, so he's sitting in front of all his stuff. He's got his bike and his computer and his kayak and his scuba and his surfboard and his dog and his cat and his 
you know, all the stuff young man might like. And it says, Spence has put a twist on a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger pickup. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. <laughs> he says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So if you think the meditation stuff was way too difficult, you can just go buy a Ford pickup truck and just be done with all that difficult stuff. So, um, so the, the, the parami of renunciation. Renunciation, you know, you can take it about, you can think of it in different ways. I like to think of it in terms of letting go. Um, and to see where we're holding on. See where our holding on is causing us suffering. So one student I know, she said her, her, one of her relatives used to keep uh, boxes in the basement of um, broken light bulbs and little unused bits of string that went too short now to be used for anything. So what do we keep in our basement you know, that we're holding on to? You know, we all like to hold on to things, right? Just look at, just go home and look in your closets. <laughs> we like to hold on to stuff. We like to hold on to people. We like to hold on to experience. We like to hold on. And what, you know, as Joseph Goldstein says, wh- what happens when we hold on? We get rope burn, right? We get rope burn, right? The rope, life moves. We pull, we hold on. Ow. Ow. And to see, you know, Dharma teachings teach us that the wisdom, the freedom, the peace that comes when we are able to not hold on so tightly, which doesn't mean as often as mistakenly thought we renounce in the sense that we reject. We can enjoy, we can love, we can appreciate this beautiful world that we live in. We just don't have to grab it and strangle it, whether it's ourselves, our experience, our person, life itself. This is from Jane Hirschfield, who puts it beautifully, and I think I'll come to closing close with this. She says, Ripeness is what falls away with ease. Not only the heavy apple, the pear, but also the dried brown strands of autumn iris from their core. To let your body love this world that gave itself to your care in all of its ripeness. To let your body love this world that gave itself to your care in all of its ripeness with ease and will take itself from you in equal ripeness and ease is also harvest. And however sharply you are tested, this sorrow, that great love, it too will leave on that clean knife. So we love things, we appreciate the beautiful autumn colors, the the light, the subtle light of the sunset today, of the beauty of your lover's face, of the sweetness of your breath. And we know that we have to let it, all of it go. We, we, we can't hold on. Holding on destroys that which we love, that which we hold sacred. So... Um, these are some of the qualities. I didn't get to the some other ones, which maybe when I'm here next time, I'll talk about love and metta, about ethics, 
about energy and perseverance, determination, other beautiful qualities that are really helpful and necessary on our journey. So what I ask of you as you go home and you, you go back into your lives and um, is to reflect on these qualities, right? So I've talked about patience and generosity and truthfulness and wisdom and renunciation or letting go. So what would it be for you to take one of these qualities or the other qualities that I mentioned or any other quality that feels right to you that would, would serve you in your life and in your heart to, to develop. Right? And just to call it to mind, to wake up, you mull it over as you sit, you bring it to mind as you go to work, as you feed the children, as you, whatever it is you do. Call to mind, cultivate the, the qualities of a Buddha, the, the, ex, the enlightened expression of a Buddha. So this too can be you. This is, this is our birthright to develop and, and inherit and flourish these qualities. So thank you for your attention. It's been a pleasure to be here. I'm not sure when I'm back again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.